All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. Hey, you guys, guess what? I got Eric Margulies online. Well, I guess you already saw the file name and everything. Uh, War at the Top of the World and American Raj, Liberation or Domination are two books that he wrote. They're just brilliant, man. You really should read them and learn lots of stuff. And he writes at ericmargulies.com. Now, again for I think the first time in a while. So happy I, to have you back in print and happy to have you back on the show. Eric, how are you, sir? Thank you, Scott. I'm happy to be back with you after a long hiatus. I've been out of commission. I was going to res- re- resume work on a book, uh, but uh, I haven't made that much progress, and I've been l- lollygagging. All right. Well, as long as you're doing all right, man. But, yeah, we've missed you, and I'm very happy to have you back. And Thank talk you. to you and to read you and of course you know like always you're good on stuff so this article is called halt this crazy rush to all-out war and um you know this is kind of my dilemma is yeah, i'm worried about the worst case scenario but i don't want to go around screaming about the worst case scenario all the time because that seems crazy but it is kind of crazy And in fact, a year ago, I was so reluctant to predict the worst that I didn't. And then I looked stupid for not predicting the worst when the worst came true. So uh, you never know what's going to happen. And it seems like everybody in charge on all sides is really stupid and mean. And none of them, even if they meant well, would know what to do at this point. And so I don't know what to do. What do you think? Well, I think that this is a a good view of, of how World War I began. Uh, these are small groups of officials uh, changing policy and twisting things around to get their particular beliefs, whether it's war in Germany or war against Belgium or whatever. Uh, and we've, we're at the mercy of the bureaucrats again. Uh, there is, to my mind, a very clear rush to war. Uh, it has all the scary makings of something, as you pointed out, which could be a nuclear war that makes absolutely no sense, but we've got sucked into it. And this is not good for Ukraine. It's not good for Russia. Yeah, man. So now I guess I'm interested to hear your perspective on all this. I know that we talked certainly around the time of the 2014 so-called revolution, but I think I'd interviewed you about Ukraine before that, possibly even going back to 2004 on the Orange Revolution. I think so, Scott. I think so. And in fact, I have my friend did a big collection of notes on my show about uh, Russia that I haven't even dared to break open and look at yet um, for the book that I'm writing about this stuff. So I'm pretty sure I am going to find that in there. Because we did, I know we covered the Orange Revolution at the time because we did for antiwar.com and I was doing the show then. Yes. Although that was pretty early on in the show. So I, I can't promise I had an interview or two about that, but I sure might have. But I know that I've seen a picture of you with Yulia Timoshenko, 
the gas princess from the what you call it party. I forgot now. I knew it a minute ago. Um, and I know that you've spent a lot of time there and know a lot about it. So I'm kind of interested to hear just sort of your long term perspective and, you know, give you a chance to to inform people about, you know, how you look at this and what you think they should know about it, you know? Well, I'm I'm distant enough from the conflict to be able to see both sides. And uh, I don't subscribe to the demonization of Russia or the vilification of Putin uh, any more than I do vilifying uh, George Bush for invading Iraq. Um, it's a horrible war. It has to end. Uh, and uh, the Russians are really warning us that their finger is getting close to the trigger for nuclear trigger. Yeah, they keep having Medvedev talk about that. Um, but so, I mean, tell us about Ukraine and like the time you spent there and what you learned. I know that you, you know, back then, at least in 2014, if not earlier, you talked about, you know, I think after 2014, I remember you explaining why Russia didn't really want the Donbass then because of the economics of the situation. They would cost more than it would be any gain to Russia and this kind of thing. So. I'm trying to crack your brain open here and get you to remember all the stuff that you knew back when you were there and would well, want us to I know about it. Well, I was delving deep into the very tragic history of Ukraine and Russia and uh, trying to understand, you know, uh, all these Ukrainians who are running around today used to be Russians not very long ago. And Ukraine used to be the heartland of the Soviet Union. And uh, we're getting a completely changed situation. Uh, we have Ukrainians who I admire and like. They're fighting for their independence. But for what end? Ukraine used to be one of the most corrupt countries in Europe. Uh, it was just fraught with, with embezzlement and crime. And uh, all of a sudden, it's become a, a sanctuary of Christian righteousness. Uh, I don't take that view. Uh, the Ukrainians are just as self-serving as they used to be. And uh, this war has become a big money-making industry for Ukraine. You know, the U.S. poured $100 billion of money into Ukraine. That's a lot of money by anybody's account, even for the Saudis. So... Um, it's the whole thing is very unfortunate, as the Russians keep saying. It's extremely dangerous because this we're we're seeing mission creep, such as in Vietnam, going on here, where now we're sending tanks, uh, and the tanks won't be enough. We'll have to send more tanks and more soldiers and so on and fighter planes and so on and so forth. We're, we're on the road to war. It's a question of how quickly it will happen. Man, you know, now that we're talking about this, I remember you telling me in 2014 that you'd been palling around with some French diplomats over there. Very high society guy, Eric Margulies. Um, and so you were over at some fancy pants party with these guys, and they were telling you that they thought this was the most dangerous time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the war in the East was pretty bad at that time, but nothing like what's going on right now. No, no. So how much closer can you get to the brink of war before it spreads? 
Well, we're on the verge of it now. I mean, this the war's been going on since 2014 in the industrial Donbas region, which is Russian speaking, by the way. And um, so, so is uh, so are some other parts of Russia, uh, Ukraine, um, for example, uh, Odessa. Uh, these are areas that. Uh, are very volatile, don't don't want to be part of Ukraine particularly, uh, and would prefer, prefer to be with Russia. I had originally said at the time the way to end this war is for Ukraine to make a deal with Russia to uh, hand over some of these parts of Ukraine that don't want to be re-Ukrainian and uh, make a uh, peace deal. Yeah, and, you know, uh I was talking with Ted Snyder about this earlier where Poroshenko, certainly Zelensky after him, but Poroshenko too, they were really in a bind where if they really tried to make peace with the Donbass and live up to the peace deals, they had to worry about the threat of being overthrown by these Nazi militias, right sector and C-14 and Azov battalion, all of them That's threatened right. that we'll kill you, dude. You're not going to do that. And even the New York Times said that, hey, that's a credible threat coming from these guys. So, Scott, uh, I've been I've been touched with these right wing Ukrainian groups since the turn of the century. And uh, I remember being visited by veterans of the first Ukrainian division in World War One or two, rather, who uh, who fought with the Germans against uh -huh. the communist forces. And uh, so this is a deep rooted problem. And uh, calling them Nazis isn't isn't quite enough to describe the uh, situation. It's it's very worrisome, and uh, it, you also find it in other East European countries too. Mm. Yeah, I mean the thing is, there's always groups of skinheads and and Nazi movements here and there, but I don't think there's anywhere in the world where they have this much power and influence with the government, and where the government doesn't dare cross them. You know what I mean? If it really came down to it in America, the FBI would just round these guys all up. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, the U.S. national government is going to win against some white supremacist groups. In Ukraine, it's more like the national government is going, well, hope these guys don't kill us. That's <laughs> right. Know? That's right. Here's some guns and some money, guys. Go out there and make us proud. Well, this is a fragmented country. You know, bits and parts of it should be German or should be Polish. It's very complicated. And uh, just trying to explain it to anybody is a, a brain bender. Yeah, seriously. Well, so um, what do you think is going to happen here? The Ukrainians don't seem to want to quit. America's got their, you know, giving them all this intelligence support and weapons and training and all of this. And yet on the other side, the Russians got a bigger country and a bigger army and a lot more tanks and whatever. So I keep oh, saying know, this. I'm sorry because I know it's not very like inventive or clever or whatever, but it seems to me like the the unstoppable force versus the immovable object. Ukraine can't force Russia out, but Russia can't just take the four provinces they want either. So now what? It's true. It could drag on for years and sort of... Uh partial guerrilla war and clashes. But, you know, Russia has shown uh, this whole Ukraine business, has shown that Russia's not as strong as we thought it was. 
And there was a time I remember vividly when we were quailing and peeing in our pants with fear that uh, 50,000 Russian tanks were going to break on Western Europe and we're going to be in, in six days after uh, launching, we're going to be in the port of Antwerp, cutting off NATO's supply lines. Well, it turns out that uh, Putin reduced the size of the Russian army some years back, uh, way back, and said they would rely more on nuclear arms than on manpower. And the result is that we have a feeble Russian army now that is poorly motivated. And that's why the Russians are rattling their nuclear weapons, because their ultimate uh, resistance to to what it sees as Western invasion are, are nukes. Right. Um, you know, I wonder about that, too, because, you know, I hear a lot of conflicting reports about, you know, just how bad they might, how badly they might need to resort to that, I guess, you know, because they're saying they if the Ukrainians attack Crimea, then they might resort to nukes to protect it. But would they need to? And because I think they also admit that the Ukrainians don't have the the capability to take back Crimea at this point. I mean, they just lost a major town in Donetsk province, you know, in the last few days here, uh, you know, last week or so. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, that is the risk, right? That, you know, the, the Russians and not just Crimea now, the Russians have officially expanded to these four provinces, not just Donetsk and Luhansk, but also Zaporozhye and Kherson now. And they claim to own all of them, even the areas that they don't control. And so really, with a turn of phrase, you got territory that the Russians claim is sovereign Russian Federation territory that the Ukrainians claim is not either. And they're still still willing to fight for and really including Donetsk and Luhansk too. So, you know, both sides have to climb way down from the positions that they're in now, right? Like... Crime, the Kiev would have to say, fine, you can take Donetsk and Luhansk, but you got to give back Zaporozhye and, yeah. and Kherson. Like, they're not going to say that. And the Russians aren't going to say, okay, well, we un-annex Zaporozhye and Kherson and we'll just settle for Donetsk and Luhansk. Like, that's a hell of a compromise for them to make. I don't know, man. I don't see it. And, and Anthony know, Blinken's going to broker that thing? Uh, if... Uh, they attack, if the Ukrainians start attacking um, Crimea, uh, it's going to be particularly a uh, sensitive problem because Crimea, Sebastopol, where I've been, uh, is one of the hero cities of the Soviet Union, or was, for its resistance in World War II. And uh, Crimea was a very intensive battleground to, over the entire range of it. And uh, they're not Russians. They're not going to be kicked out of that by some Ukrainian, what they call Ukrainian fascists. Uh, and yet the Ukrainians want it back because they claim it's theirs. Well, Nikita Khrushchev, who was a Ukrainian, uh, got drunk one night, as usual, and in a speech waved his arms and gave Crimea, which was then Soviet Russian, Back to Ukrainian. Um, it was uh, a historical oddity. 
and uh, it has caused enormous trouble ever since. Uh, the Ukrainians, I mean, the Russians have ruled that area since the 1700s. Um, it's hard to think, as you just pointed out, that anybody making a reasonable deal over that. Yeah. Well, yeah, seriously. I mean, the stakes are so high on both sides at this point that they just, boy, they could have just implemented Minsk too. Now look at it. But so, hey, I want to go back to all them hoity-toity types in France that, you know, and... Maybe we, and, okay. You know, yeah, maybe. I don't know how to speak that crazy gibberish, but uh, maybe other countries in Europe too. Like, what is going on with this thing? I remember when the war first started, Colonel McGregor was like, well... Pretty soon here, the Germans are going to say enough and work out some kind of peace deal or whatever because they're right here and they got to deal with these consequences. They don't want to get dragged into this war. Well, now it's a right. year later and they're they're giving tanks. So they're getting dragged right into it. And the foreign well, minister of Germany, I swear to God, the foreign minister of Germany the other day said, we are at war with Russia. So well, what the hell, man? Because it seems like I know that the people that run the American government are just as dumb as can be. They're just Scooter Libby, all of them. But over in Europe, are they no better than willing no, to march us all better. in Armageddon like this? It just seems so crazy, man. They're much better, Scott, but they have a better understanding of things. Germany's caught in the middle between Russia and the U U.S. And the Germans, the whole Russia's the keystone of German politics, good relations with Russia. Uh, it's, uh, but they, uh, Europeans have show that they remain very much, uh, American vassals. They are uh, under intense economic and political pressure from Washington to join this fight. The Germans wanted no part of it. Germans tanks weren't even working because they had female defense ministers who uh, knew nothing about maintenance. Uh, so, uh, the Germ but the Germans are doing a de minimis uh, to send some of their excellent leopard tanks. Uh, and they are rightfully fearful that they're going to be caught in the war. And the majority of German voters don't want to be in this war, uh, even though Washington does. And, and the French feel the same way. So uh, good luck to them. Yeah. Sorry. Hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here for Tennessee Hot Sauce Company. Man, this stuff is so good. They get all different flavors. Garlic habanero, honey habanero, pineapple habanero, poblano jalapeno, and the blood orange ghost. They're all so good, I swear. And for a limited time, Tennessee Hot Sauce Company is featuring official Scott Horton Hotter Than the Sun thermonuclear hot sauce. It's full of Carolina Reapers, Scorpion Peppers, Dr. Pepper, hydrogen isotopes, and all kinds of things that'll burn your tongue clean off. Seriously, it's really good. Get yourself a hot sauce subscription. Spend $40 or more and use promo code SCOTT to get a free bottle of Hotter Than The Sun hot sauce. That's tnhotsauceco.com. Hey, y'all gotta check out these awesome busts of our hero, the great Ron Paul. They're made by the renowned sculptor Rick Casali. They're 13 inches tall, hand-painted bronze resin based on Casale's brilliant original. Y'all may have seen mine in the background on my bookshelf in some recent interviews. The thing is unbelievable. Check out this incredible piece of art at rickcasale.com slash ronpaul and you'll see what I mean. Use promo code Horton and you'll save 25 bucks. And this show will get a little kickback too. That's rickcasale.com slash ronpaul. 
Casali is C-A-S-A-L-I. RickCasali.com slash Ron Paul. And there's free shipping, too. Man, so now here's the thing, and this is something that we've been complaining about for a long time, is all these think tank weenies in D.C., they kind of really relish the idea of having a conventional war with Russia. That's sort of what they always would have liked to have is somehow a tank war and maybe, you know, jet fighter dogfights and cool stuff like that, but without nukes going off. Exactly. And they just sort of ignore the nukes and just, you know, talk this way about, well, we did some war games about what it would take to beat the Russians in Ukraine, for example, uh, this kind of thing. Um, And so, uh, I don't know, man, it looks like they're, they must be, as you said on this, on this ladder of escalation here, that it really is just a matter of time before they put in troops because otherwise it's just not going to cut it. Not that the American troops necessarily going to have their way, but, and I guess I just wonder like, at what point is it where there's just no turning back from this, where it ends up being a full scale war between NATO and Russia and including A-bombs and H-bombs. Well, Scott, it'll probably come when you have uh, American uh, fighters, F-15s, F-16s, clashing over uh, Crimea with uh, Russian fighters and naval clashes in the Black Sea. Yeah. And then, you know, Joe Biden said... Yeah, Joe Biden said, man, we're like this close to Armageddon. And then nobody oh. said, yeah, because of you. Like, what are you doing? This thing is so I crazy. It's nuts. It's like, it's, a- it's as reckless as W. Bush going to Iraq if Iraq really did have nukes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Well, these are small-minded bureaucrats in Washington who are uh, no not, no less smart than small-minded bureaucrats in, in Bonn or in Berlin and uh, Moscow uh, who are pushing this, this war. And uh, it's a question of prestige and got to keep America on top because the Chinese are coming and scare off the Chinese. Mm-hmm. Show them what Uncle Sam can do. Yeah. Now, listen, I'm, puff. I'm glad you brought that up because this is something that you know, we do cover from time to time, but it's just not my strong suit. And I am so busy. I got so many different jobs. It's ridiculous. And I'm trying to keep up with everything, but China gets the short shrift. And um, so we don't really cover that enough, but it seems like we have a real Ukraine problem with Taiwan here where there's a lot of you and him go fight. And we do. We may or may not have your back. We I, do. It's the yeah. Chinese have lost all reasonable thought on the subject. They... I'm frightened to see the Chinese, who are such an intelligent people, uh, consumed by by r- rabid nationalism. It's happening. And uh, we are heading towards a war over Taiwan. The Chinese even put it by 2027. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I know... Uh at least a couple of experts who think that's true. Lyle Goldstein, he was kind of, I guess, ignoring the politics of it, or not ignoring them, but emphasizing just the naval buildup and saying, well, look, I mean, what they're doing is they're building a naval invasion force. I mean, that's what this is. Uh, And so at some point they're going to pull the trigger on it. But um, I think the the Taiwanese will make a deal with the Chinese. 
Yeah, you know, Peter Van President. Buren... Peter Van Buren thinks that China would not attack them, that it would have to be some major provocation by America or Taiwan to make them attack. Because he I just says so. they have so much costly. at stake. Huh? I agree. It's, it would be enormously costly for China. But, uh, you know, uh, Mao used to comment about, you know, losing 100 million people more or less really wouldn't even be noticed. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, and so look, and this goes back to what you're saying about kind of what Rubes, the um, the foreign policy establishment is here. I mean, it seems like we have everything comes from such a consensus about, oh, yeah, what we all agree we need to do, even though it's completely stupid, right? Like if you go like this all, I mean, there's more to it than this, but in terms of the real cocktail party set. It was Hillary Clinton's article in foreign policy about the pivot to Asia, our Pacific century. It said, we're doing all this. And you have all these think tanks that work for the military industries who go, oh yeah, rising Chinese threat. And then it seems like, I mean, it's almost inescapable that the Chinese threat rose in reaction to all of that because they're saying, hey, look, Hillary Clinton's coming. <laughs> And so we better do, you know, do this buildup. And of course, the Republicans only attack the Democrats for being too weak on China. Like it's always Bill Clinton and James Riotti, even though that was 30 years ago, you know. And Joe Biden is worse than Trump on the naval buildup over there and everything. So the dynamics are really bad, you know. The Democrats are that bad and the, and the Republicans got to prove how much they hate the commies and all that. So. I agree with you entirely. And the the Democrats, the right wing of the Democratic Party, has revealed itself to be as bloodthirsty as the right wing Republicans. They're all ready to fight to the last American GI or for over an obscure war that they couldn't even locate on a map. But uh, there it is. That's big power politics. Yeah. And it's just funny because it's, it's what the banality of evil or whatever that like, come on, you guys don't have a master plan or anything. This is really just about arms sales. You just hire some goons to write some papers to justify after the fact a policy you've decided that's basically all just about making money first. How are we going to sell some ships to the Navy? Well, let's pick a fight with China. Like everybody can tell the fleas wagging the dog. And that's it. It's, it works. You know? It works. I've been looking at my de defense stocks that I own, which shouldn't be called defense stocks. They should be called offensive stocks. And uh, they're going like gangbusters. Oh, man, you should General sell those, Dynamics Eric. You don't want that money. Uh, no, I don't. Oh. I but thought you said your defense stocks. I was like, oh, man, you heavy oh, invested I give, in I give, them, I give them the money to my animal charities. Oh, I got you. Let let the feet, let the humans have their World War Three. But in any event, I really think that uh, the the Chinese are determined to retake Taiwan because they've made a big deal out of it. Not that anybody in China really cares about it. People are, uh, you know, gone obsessed with nationalism and the government is, keeps beating the drums there and it works. It's like, look how we were in the States when we invaded Iraq. Uh, it's the same kind of mentality, yeah. small thinking, lots, lots of noise. All right. So now 
what difference does it make, do you think? I mean, in other words, if you look at all the war games and you see how the Navy knows that they're going to lose a bunch of ships and that fighting a war that far from home and that close to China is a huge task and probably not worth it. Do you think the Americans might just let China take it? Or you think that's guaranteed to lead to war or what? Well, uh, Scott, in my book, War at the Top of the World, uh, which was written 10 years ago, I said, uh, talking about Asia, that the biggest challenge to American foreign policy is making a dignified withdrawal from the Asian mainland uh, and backing off and let the Chinese have their sphere of influence there. It's grown-up politics. Bismarck would have approved of that. But instead, we've got all these little tin pot con congressmen from nowhere places beating the war drums, knowing that their sons will never have to go. Yeah. Yep. Seems like it. Um, and, you know, so, you know, I remember Andrew Basevich was saying, well, we ought to withdraw from everywhere, but not Asia, because we got a balance between Korea, Japan and China. That's just too volatile over there. But I wonder if you think we could withdraw and then I could put you in charge of the peace conference in Japan and China and Korea and for that matter, Vietnam and Thailand, everybody around with important interests, Australia, everybody could work out a pretty good trade agreement and be friends. What do you think? Well, it, it could happen, but it's going to be difficult. And uh, there are a lot of people trying to throw a spanner in the works. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're still, we're still maintaining 100,000 troops in Europe. Uh, against whom I don't know. I guess the Russians have not been showing themselves very threatening of late. Uh, the in Asia, you're right. We're we can't fight a war at the other side of the world. We did it in World War II. We got besotted with that mythology, but this time now against Japan was a, a little weak. Asian country, China has huge resources, huge amounts of missiles, and China can take any amount of punishment from the U.S. Uh, and the Chinese know it, too. You know, very interesting points, Scott. Uh, in, um, the U.S. was ready to nuclear bomb China during the Korean War. Mm -hmm. And Chinese know that, and they feel themselves under threat today. Uh, from the U.S., so they'd like to get 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 over with this war and uh, humble the U.S. and push it back into the Pacific. Um, you know, uh, Rex Tillerson, um, who was uh, Donald Trump's first Secretary of State and had been the CEO of Exxon, he had told you know Bob Woodward, "What are you going to do with the guy?" But it you know purports to be firsthand interviews with these principals, so. The quote supposedly comes directly from him, which is that, hey, look, you know, China threatens our domination of the Pacific. And so that's why we have to build up all of this stuff. You know, it's just business. But the entire Pacific Ocean is an American lake. And they think that they're going to be dominant in the South China Sea. Well, we'll see about that. We're going to rename it South California Sea. OK, I'm ad-libbing this part. <laughs> but it's ours, not theirs. And... You know, they call it the Thudicides trap. The rising empire is going to challenge the 
older one, but maybe the older one should just piss off and get out of the way since they got no right to intervene over there in the first place, you know? Well, that was my suggestion. We're mm. what a fertile area for creative diplomacy to uh, work our way back into the Pacific because we're overstretched now. We're running over a debt-saddled country. We can't. We gave hundred million, hundred billion dollars to Ukraine, and yet we're borrowing a lot of it from loans. So uh, we have reached our imperial limit. And we need to start consolidating our positions. Yeah, man, I tell you what, uh, I don't know how anybody could get it through to the people in charge. You know, they're just so stuck in their way of thinking. It seems like they just don't second guess themselves at all. I saw a clip of Mitt Romney today saying, look, you can't just let a country attack another country and get away with it or else who knows what they might do. I'm We've had seven wars just in the last 20 years. <laughs> and That's he right. doesn't know. He he can't think of it that way. I remember John McCain saying the same thing. He's like, in Iraq, going, we're going to stand up to Russia because you can't invade countries. What is this, the 19th century? Like, it what? is, it is. That's the thinking. Yeah. It's imperialist Imperialist thinking. You've got this uh, this Kagan character uh, the historian, so-called historian, uh, come out beating the same drum too. They want great power America. Yep. Um, well, and you know, it's funny when I debated Bill Crystal, someone in the audience asked him, well, geez, man, after all of the failure of the Middle East wars and everything, like what would have to happen for you to admit that hegemony didn't really work out? And he said, well, I guess if some nukes started going off, then I would have to admit that maybe my policy wasn't really the right one. So it's falsifiable, but only if we all die and there's no one left to shame him for it. So that's a pretty good or the Or the stock market collapses. Yeah, well, I'd take and, that. Um, America has a financial 9-11. Uh, it, it is possible. We're, we're shaky. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that's always been the contest is that hopefully a total economic calamity will take the empire out before a nuclear war does, you know? Well, I, as, as I've written in the past, I wish we would stop reliving World War II. We are totally drunken by untriumphalist propaganda from that war. Uh, which we in part engineered uh, and uh, which was a great success for the United States. But it's no longer here, and we no longer have the Battle of Midway. We've got much more complex problems and much more dangerous enemies. Yeah. You know, um, I read a thing, I can't remember who it was one time, that talked about how, you know, that Saving Private Ryan and uh, Tom Brokaw's uh, book, The Greatest Generation, and all that stuff came out right at the end of the 90s. And you had all these baby boomers feeling like, you know, they didn't get to have a big crusade. Iraq War One was too short or something. And they were kind of lost because they didn't get to kill people on that scale. And so then when September 11th happened and the analogy to Pearl Harbor was perfect with the surprise attack in the morning and 3,000 dead and all that. And so then it was like on that now we get to pretend and reenact the World War II scenario in the terror war, you know, and turn this what should have been 
a tiny little special operations mission against a few hundred guys into, uh, you know, this massive global crusade and all that just to essentially, like, take care of their emotions and stuff like that, you know? Well, it's true, Scott. Well, also and for it's Israel. still going on. Yeah, I know. Uh, that's true. I mean, they're bombing Somalia all the time. Still got troops in Iraq and Syria and special operations forces troops and all throughout North Africa. And they did at least one drone strike Middle in Africa, Afghanistan, too, presumably for Pakistan, I guess. Yes. And it looks like they may have missed him, too. They said they were killing Zawahiri, but then now they put out you know, a new podcast of him, although they say that it's not clear in there when it was recorded, so I don't know. But. Yeah, there's a lot of lying that goes on here. I don't know. I don't believe anything I hear. Yeah, seriously. All right, well, listen, you know, um, I've said this before, but I sure meant it then, and it's true, and I remember well that even though I've read your articles for years and they're always great. Um, and I've interviewed you based on those articles, you know, so many times over the years. Uh, but that those books were at the top of the world and American Raj, which I read both for uh, when I was researching for writing my books about the terror war, man, those things are just masterpieces. Anybody who wants to know about American foreign policy and the history of American Middle East policy over the last couple of generations over there, you got to read these books. They're just so good. And I really hope that people read them. And sometimes I'll go somewhere and I'll see somewhere on the shelf somebody has American Raj. And I'm like, oh, I get it. You get it. See, yeah. Not everybody you, understands. Scott. But if you've read that book, then you know what I'm saying. And I read yours, too. So I salute you. Yeah, very good. All right. Well, listen, man, I'll let you go and have a great Friday afternoon. But uh, I'm we'll so glad soon, that we got to yeah. talk again, Eric. Okay, Scott. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right. Eric Margulies, everybody. Check him out at ericmargulies.com. Spell it like Margolis. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.